Galatians chapter 4. I think the text will also appear on the screen. Galatians chapter 4. We've been focusing in our sermons in the month of December on why Jesus came into the world, why his birth is important to us, why there's a holiday that has his name attached to it. And uh, one of the reasons is in this chapter in Galatians 4, 1 to 7. So let's give our attention to God's word as we read that passage, and then I'll pray for understanding for all of us. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, also we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, saying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Let's pray. Uh, we prepare you room right now in our hearts, Lord. Uh, and we open our hearts to you. And we ask that you would give us ears to hear and uh, hearts to embrace the gift that you've given to us that makes all other gifts seem insignificant. Open our eyes today to see what it is and to go on our way rejoicing and all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we all know that today is a day when, if we can afford it at least, we give gifts to one another. Uh, and if you can't afford it, then at least you hope somebody else can so that you can be on the receiving end <laughs> of those gifts. Uh, we like getting gifts, don't we? Especially if it's something that you actually want. Um, something that maybe you desperately need. It's like Proverbs thirteen twelve, which says, Desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Uh, when a serious need or a deeply held desire is met, uh, it's like life to us. Um, it, it makes us happy. It lifts you up from the mundane and say, well, today is an exceptional day. Well, as I mentioned last night at the Christmas Eve service, gifts that we give each other don't really bring the fullness of life that we really want, do they? Um, it's, it's like Psalm 119.96 says, I have seen a limit to all perfection. Uh, in other words, everything has its limits. Even the best things in life lack the quality of the infinite enjoyment and the endless satisfaction that, that we want. Uh, that's why we have to do it all over again next Christmas, right? <laughs> because this year isn't going to do it for us, even if you get everything you wanted. But what if I were to tell you that God has a Christmas gift for you that doesn't have those limits? 
that actually does satisfy your desires forever. Um, that actually is the ultimate tree of life, if you will. That is 10,000 times better than whatever you're hoping for today or this year or in your life. Would you believe me if I said that God has something like that for you? Would you believe me if I said that God has more happiness in store for you than what you experience when you get everything that you want? Like you go to see Rogue One and you think it's an amazing movie or whatever. You get your smartphone, you get your new computer, you get whatever. And that feeling that you have, would you believe that God has something for you 10,000 times better than that? To put that in its proper place, in its lower place. God has a gift like that for you. And the name that we can give to it is adoption as sons. That's the gift that we're going to focus on this morning. Many of you already have that gift, but you may not realize what it means to you, what God intends with it. And so you might not be living in the good of that. And then others here might not have that gift. And I want you to be curious, more than curious, but to actually hear and believe what it is and embrace it because it is the way to the tree of life. And so we're going to explore that gift this morning. Um, first, we need to provide a little context because this gift is in the passage, verse 5, Jesus came that we might receive adoption as sons. That's, that's where we're going. We're going to focus on that adoption principle. But here's the context of, of the letter first. Paul wrote this letter to uh, the Galatians. That means to people that were in churches that he planted on his first missionary trip in what is now today modern-day Turkey. Uh, and people in those churches were mostly non-Jews who had converted over to trust in Jesus. They believed the gospel of forgiveness of sin through trusting Christ as Savior. But also in those churches, there were uh, Jews who had converted over to Christianity as well. Now, sometime after he started those churches, other teachers came through with a different message. And they were saying that, yes, you need to believe in Jesus in order for your sins to be forgiven, but you also have to do the works of the law of Moses in order to be right with God. So you need to circumcise your males uh, as a sign of being in the covenant relationship with God. And you need to observe certain feast days. And you need to abstain from certain foods and things like that. And as long as you do those things, you will be saved. So that's their message. When Paul heard what was going on, he sent off this letter to the churches to counter that teaching. And pretty much the whole letter is dedicated to proving that justification, that is the declaration from God that you are right with him, and that your sins are forgiven, his, his intent is that justification is not through faith in Jesus plus works, but through faith in Jesus alone, without works, or apart from works. Um, works don't come into the equation. Now, that's not to say that works or obedience to God's commands are un is unnecessary to the Christian life. 
Um, James wrote a letter to deal with the problem of people who thought that was true. That, hey, I don't need works. Uh, But that's not Paul's scenario. Paul's writing to a church where people are being taught, you need to add works to your faith in order to be justified or made right with God. And that will not do. So he writes this letter. It's important to know the background because chapter 4 picks up in the middle of one of Paul's arguments uh, for how we are justified and made right with God through faith in Christ alone. And in the process of defending that, he goes even further to showing us just how good it is to be justified by faith in Christ. And his method in this passage is to use an analogy of a slave who gets redeemed and then becomes an adopted son who receives great privileges. That's the analogy of 1 to 7. So let's follow his analogy. We're going to consider it in three parts, three words, slavery, and then redemption, and then adoption. That's the pattern here. Let's start with slavery. In verse 1, Paul pictures a child who is the heir of a great estate, but for all practical purposes, he's no different from a slave, he says. Uh, That is, he hasn't come into his inheritance yet. He doesn't really have control over it, so practically speaking, it doesn't belong to him. Uh, He's no different from a slave because they both live in the house, but neither of them has rights to the estate. Meanwhile, as verse 2 says, he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. That means he won't get to own everything until he comes of age which in the Roman culture was somewhere between 14 and 25 years old. But until then, he's no different from a slave. And Paul picks up on that slave imagery in verse 3, and he applies it to the church. He applies it to to the Jews and the Gentiles who came to faith in Christ in Galatia, and it also applies by extension to us as well. And basically he says that slavery is everyone's natural state before we come to Christ. That's everybody's natural state before we come to Christ. It's a slavery. He says, we, talking about Christians now, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In other words, whether you were were a Jew or a non-Jew, before you came to Christ, you were a slave to something. Uh, You were under the law, to use Paul's phrase in the following verses. So you were either trying to keep all the commandments given through Moses, if you were a Jew, or you were trying to live up to some other standards, if you weren't a Jew, some principles of the world. Either way, you were trying hard to be right with God or to have some kind of good hope of an afterlife, whatever that looked like. But you know that it wasn't working. (laughs) It never brought you forgiveness for sins. It never brought you into acceptance with God. It never brought you eternal life. And Paul likens that to slavery, for which all of your hard work never leads to owning the estate. 
That's the reason they're so concerned about this new teaching that the church is getting. Because if you're adding works to faith in order to be right with God, it's like submitting again to a yoke of slavery. That's what he says in chapter 5, verse 1. Why would you do that? Why would you go back into slavery? You probably know what that feels like. The way we experience that kind of slavery... Of, of trying to do something to be, make ourselves right with God, it, it shows up in being anxious and burdened, always trying to do the right things, whatever we consider to be the right things, and yet knowing in our hearts that it isn't enough. It's not good enough. We still feel far from God. We still can't keep everything together. We still don't measure up. We have this impossible task in front of us to be right with God, to be justified, to be considered righteous in His sight. But we keep plugging away at it anyway because we have to. We're under guardians and managers who tell us what to do but don't give us the power to do it. The guardians of God's law and our own conscience that tells on us. That kind of slavery is our natural state. You've probably felt it and I have too. And even believers can feel this way. But that's a result of not knowing or believing what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's why we tend that way. So Paul wants us to know um, what it is that he's done for us in Jesus. And he goes on to show us how we come of age, so to speak, how we transition out of that state of slavery into something amazing. And this is where he brings in the picture of redemption. Redemption. Verse 4 tells us, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Now the fullness of time corresponds back to verse 2, which is the date set by the Father. When the child comes into his inheritance... Uh, when now he becomes different from a slave. Uh, so what happens to make the, the slave child come of age? Well, it's when God's son comes to, verse 5, redeem those who were under the law. Redeem those who were under the law. To redeem in the context of slavery means to pay a price to release someone from slavery. Um, they get to go free. And God's Son, who is Jesus, came to pay that price for us, which we call the ransom. That's what he paid. So God sees us in our fallen condition. He sees us being obligated to meet his standards, but being unable to do it because of our sinful hearts. That's our slavery. And with that slavery comes condemnation, the judgment of God for not doing what we should do. And so he sends Jesus to release us from that bondage and from that penalty for our sin. He comes and he pays the ransom. And, and Jesus is uniquely in a position to do that for us because he says in the text that he is God's son, so he's divine. But he's also born of woman. He's a, a real human baby born of Mary and laid in a manger. And he's born under the law. He's obligated to keep God's law perfectly, just as we are. And so here's this divine man who actually meets God's standards. He actually lives it out sinlessly. He actually does it. He actually succeeds. 
And then what he does is he takes on himself the guilt, the blame for our sinfulness. And in exchange, he gives us his perfect record of obedience. That's, and he does that by dying on the cross for our sins. The cross is where he pays the ransom. The cross is where God pours out the condemnation for what we've done on his, son, his own son. And then he credits his own son's righteous life to us as if we hadn't sinned. And that frees us now from the burden of having to meet God's standards because Jesus meets the standard for us. God looks at us even though we're sinful and he says, but I see in you my son. I see all over you my son's righteous life, his perfect obedience. And so no more slavery, no more having to try so hard to, to uh, be approved by me. You are approved if you're in my son. That's how you get there. To use an analogy from Pastor Tim Keller, it's like Jesus takes you off death row and then he hangs a Congressional Medal of Honor around your, around your neck. <laughs> uh, you are received and welcomed by God as heroes as if we had accomplished extraordinary deeds. That, that's the transition that happens if you've benefited from the ransom of Christ. <laughs> that's how good it is to be a Christian. Gone is the need to measure up to be good enough for God to be right with him. Gone is the slavery of having commands that we are obligated to meet but we're unable to meet. Uh, it's a, in its place is the knowledge that Christ has kept the commands for us and God accepts his righteousness as belonging to us. And on that basis, on that basis alone, we're justified, declared righteous and accepted as if we had done extraordinary deeds. That can be hard to believe. That can be hard to enter into the freedom of that. We can still live like freed slaves who don't know that they're free. <laughs> still operating with this sense that, well, I have to do this or else. Uh, or else God won't love me. Or else God won't accept me. Or else he won't be there for me when I really need him. So I better change. I better try harder. That kind of thinking is still acting like a slave. Now, obedience to God is right, <laughs> but not with that motivation. Because that motivation says, I don't believe Jesus paid the ransom. I believe I still need to work for it. And that doesn't honor Christ. That doesn't honor God's sending his son into the world to redeem us. The way you honor the ransom that Christ paid is when you do something wrong, you repent and you believe the gospel. <laughs> That's always our, our, our go-to. You repent and you believe the gospel. You grieve over your failure. Then you thank God that Jesus succeeded where you failed. And he counts his success as yours. And you ask his help to move forward. You say, you know, Lord, I, I gave in to sinful anger again. I know I deserve your judgment for that. Or I fell into this habit again. And I know that that's wrong. And I do ask for your help to change in that area. But I thank you that Jesus paid the penalty 
for my wrongdoing. I thank you that it's through him that I have forgiveness of sin. I thank you that Jesus succeeded where I failed and that you count his success to me. And on that basis, I know I can approach you. On that basis, I know I'm right with you. I know I'm accepted. I know you're for me. You stop trying to measure up because just to appease your guilty conscience with more and better efforts at obedience. Obedience is right, but not for that reason. Your guilt was taken care of by Jesus. Jesus, you're, you're not a slave anymore. So what is the motive for obedience then? If you take that motive away of trying to appease God, what's the motivation for good works if it's not to get right with God? And you know the motivation. It's love for God. Love for God is the only really true obedience, true motivation for obedience. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart. Matthew 22, 37. All the other ones flow from that. And where Paul takes us next is intended to produce in us love for God. Because he doesn't stop with redemption from slavery, as good as that is. The redemption is actually not the end goal of God's purposes for you, but a means to an even better end, which is to adopt us as sons. That's the ultimate goal of the redemption. Verse 5 again, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. So that. It's, it, the redemption is so that this other thing can happen, namely, adopt you as sons. That's where it's all going. That's the gift God had in mind for us when he sent Jesus into the world on Christmas Day. So let's talk about adoption. Let's try to get our minds wrapped around what that is. The phrase adoption as sons is actually only one word in the original language, and it's sonship. And ladies, this is for you also. <laughs> because sonship is an expression that communicates a privileged status with God that the original Galatian readers would have recognized immediately. It means you have full rights to the father's estate. In Roman times, a wealthy, childless man would sometimes formally adopt one of his servants, a male, who would become legally and officially the son and heir of all his estate. It was entrance into a new life of privilege. He goes from being a slave to the son and heir. And Paul is saying, that's what happens to you, man or woman, boy or girl, if you've been redeemed by Christ. You go from slave under the law to beloved heir of God's own estate, to use that picture. In fact, you become heir to all that Jesus himself is heir to. Remember, God the Father is not childless. <laughs> he has a son. But that son, Jesus, has come to share his inheritance with you. You are heirs with Christ, as Paul would say in Romans 8, 17. Everything that Jesus deserves, you get to share with him because through Christ, you receive adoption as sons, as fully welcomed into the Father's household as Jesus himself is. 
In other words, God isn't satisfied simply to free you from slavery to a fruitless life of trying to get right with him by your own efforts. He does want to do that, but he wasn't satisfied to only forgive your sins and remove the penalty of judgment and wrath from you, as great and amazing as that is. The ransom Jesus paid was motivated by God's love for you and his desire to express that love by making you his child. He wanted to lavish his love on you as his own dear one. He wanted you to enjoy everything that his son Jesus deserves and to enjoy it forever. Now that probably sounds good, at least I hope it does. But what does it mean practically, okay, that you've been adopted as a son, as a child, as a daughter? We pretty much need to have some concept of that if we're going to get excited about our adoption and grow in our love for God and the true motivation for obedience. Let's consider the privileges of adoption. Paul draws our attention to them in verses 6 and 7. There are great privileges that come with being a son and heir of God. and Some are immediate and some are more future. So let's consider them in that order. The immediate privileges are in verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, there's no missing the connection there to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the only other place in the Bible where you see that phrase, except for where Paul quotes it. Uh, You might remember Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, praying three times, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What Paul is saying here with this connection to Jesus is that if you're an adopted son, then you have the same privilege that Jesus did to call God your Father. And to look to him for strength and help and comfort in your hour of need. And at all times, you've been brought into a father-son or a father-daughter relationship with a loving God. You can come to God day by day in prayer and fellowship on the same terms that Jesus did as one who is in his house, as one who is his beloved. You too can cry, Abba, Father. He invites you to do that because you belong to him now. You're his responsibility. He knows what you face in life and he loves you and he will be there for you. He gives you the spirit to confirm in our hearts that this is true. He calls it the spirit of his son, that mysterious trinity where it all gets kind of blurred together sometimes, the the spirit of his son. (laughs) Well, I thought the spirit and the son were different. Well, they're not. And yet they are. But there's this connection, right? The spirit of his son is in you to say to you subjectively, internally, you are God's own son. You are God's own daughter. That's one of the ministries of the spirit is to to show you that, to make that real to you. I know some of you face hard challenges. You might feel like God's not your active father. 
you might think he's indifferent to you. You might feel more like an orphan than a son or a daughter. You've got to manage your way through life as best you can, and it feels like it all depends on you. And, and God's not involved in that. That might be the way you feel, but hear God's counsel, I think. <laughs> Don't trust your feelings. Trust reality, which is that in Christ, you are God's adopted child. He is at work exercising his love towards you every day, and he knows why he allows what he allows into your life. Spurgeon said it well in a quote that I recently saw on the wall of someone's house. Uh, he said, Remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. If any other condition had been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Uh, don't be discouraged that God's answer to your prayers is sometimes no. God said no to Jesus' prayer when he cried, Abba, Father, remove this cup from me. But that was ultimately for Jesus' own joy and yours. Because it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, according to Hebrews 12, 2, the joy of having his redeemed people with him forever. The Father had to say no to that prayer in order to adopt you. There was no other way than the cross for the ransom to be paid so that we could be cleared for adoption. God's no to Jesus was his yes to your adoption and his yes to your joy and ultimately to Jesus' own joy, though he had to go through a cross. So you can know that even God's silence when you are in pain is ultimately for a good purpose, just as it was for Jesus. It's a purpose of love. God is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory Far beyond all comparison, that's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17. And that eternal reality is what Paul's talking about when he says that we're heirs in verse 7. You are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Sonship or adoption does have these immediate privileges of being able to be intimate with God our Father now. But there's also this inheritance that's there. We're heirs with Christ of things that are far beyond all comparison to what we know in this life. And so we need to get our minds wrapped around what this inheritance is in order to be excited about it <laughs> and to appreciate the love of God that gives it to us through adoption. These are the future, more future, eternal privileges, but we have them now in some degree. The word heir means there is an estate to be had. There is an inheritance that you come into when you are of age. And we know now that that happens through redemption to adoption, right? So when you're adopted and you are fully the son or daughter of, of God, you come into your inheritance, it's yours. It belongs to you. But we might look at our life and say, well, nothing much has changed. So, I mean, how great can this inheritance really be? <laughs> well, 
The idea of the inheritance from God is actually a thread in the Bible that goes all the way back to Genesis and finds its completion in Revelation. And it has to do with a land. It has to do with a place for us, a place to call home, a place that's home with God, who is the ultimate desire fulfilled and the ultimate tree of life, to go back to the proverb we started with. The idea of this land starts in the Garden of Eden, where there was a tree of life, if you've ever read that, those chapters. And there were rivers there that watered everything, and in it, the Lord put Adam and Eve, perfect, perfect sinless humans, who lived in a perfect world, under God's loving rule and complete happiness, with God himself walking among them. But it all came crashing down the moment that Adam and Eve sinned by eating the fruit that God forbid that they should eat. So they were no longer sinless. The world became difficult and painful. They became separated from God, who removed them from his presence in Eden and pronounced on them the curse. And then the way back to Eden was closed, protected by cherubim with a flaming sword. But in man's heart has ever been the yearning to get back to that land, to get back to Eden. That's the echo in every longing that we have for beauty, for love, for significance, for happiness, for permanence. It's really a longing for what once was, which we would like to have. But it seems to have been lost. It seems out of reach. But God has a plan to restore it and to make it even better. In Genesis 12, we start to see the, the plan unfolding. The Lord chooses Abraham to be a blessing and uh, to, be, to be blessed and to be a blessing to the nations. That's from Genesis 12:1. And we call that place that he was given the promised land. That was the land beyond the Jordan River that Israel was given to possess after the Lord delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses called it an inheritance in Deuteronomy 4, 37 to 38. He said, The Lord loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than yourselves to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. The promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, was the inheritance of the people of God. It was where they were to live holy lives in a fruitful place under the loving rule of God with his presence among them in the tabernacle. God didn't just deliver them from slavery, which they had in Egypt, but he delivered them into his favorable presence and into his land. He even called Israel his son, in Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Do you see the pattern there? Brought out of slavery, called sons, and brought into a land where God is in the midst. A land that's fruitful. You can probably guess where this pattern reaches its ultimate fulfillment. John got to see a glimpse of it when he wrote it down in Revelation 21, 1-4. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's a land. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's our inheritance. That's Eden restored and made better. And made permanent. It's you in a perfect world under God's loving rule in complete happiness. With God himself walking among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Who's the center of it all. You'll see him face to face. That's the tree of life. That's the ultimate fulfillment of your deepest desires. That's home. And that's what you're an heir to in Christ. I don't know what's under your Christmas tree or what you have planned for this coming year. I guarantee you God's inheritance is 10,000 times better than that. Rogue One can't give you this kind of pleasure. Okay, I saw it. I liked it. It was enjoyable. But that's just eye candy. So is your smartphone or your home improvement or your vacation or your new computer. That's just eye candy. That's, that's, that's just surfacey stuff. But the inheritance is the substance. So don't put your hope in the things of this world. They pass away and they're taken away. Settle your soul with the knowledge of your real inheritance with the Father. Because Peter said it's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's the privilege of the adopted sons of God. <laughs> That's God's gift to you on the original Christmas day. I need to conclude with one more important thing not to miss. This adoption doesn't belong to everybody. This adoption is not automatic. You must put your faith in Jesus as your Lord in order to have it. Because in chapter 3, right before our passage, verse 26, Paul said, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Through faith. Your faith is the instrument through which the adoption as sons becomes ours. It's not faith plus works, but it is through faith. You must trust Jesus. You must trust Jesus born of woman, born of the Virgin Mary, laid in a manger, lived to be an adult perfectly, died on a cross for our sins, rose again, to eternal life, seated on the throne over the universe. You must trust this Jesus. And if you do, you receive the adoption. So trust Him. <laughs> Put your trust in Him and if you haven't. And receive this great gift today, if you haven't. 
and then live in the good of it. That's what will make this a very Merry Christmas, even if you get nothing, even if the rest of your year stinks. This is an imperishable thing. This is the fulfillment of all our desire, and it's yours in Christ. Let's pray. Yes, who would have dreamed of such a thing? Who would have dreamed, Lord, that you would have that kind of thing in, in your mind to sinners who deserve only wrath? That you would go so far as to not only pay our penalty, but then to make us family, to give us this inheritance, to give us the privilege to call you Father and to call on you day by day. But you've done it. And so, Lord, today help us to be more excited about that than any of the other stuff that's passing. Oh, Lord, help us to live for the future inheritance instead of today's. Oh, Lord, be glorified in us through our joy in you and our confidence in the things to come. And help that, Lord, to diminish our attachment to the world and to give, generate more love in our hearts that really leads to a true and faithful obedience. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes,